Is it the scientist in you? I, it might be because I just like to learn. So when I see something that I don't understand or that I don't know, I like to ask. And you have given us a setting where he feels comfortable to be able to do that. So this is, this is uh, one of the most famous koans. And Peg, the teacher at Apamata, um, worked with it and worked with it and went into a 10-day you know, in a hut and just being brought food and worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. Finally, she gave up completely. And with that, her teacher said she got it. Uh, I had a funny experience with it where I was told before I knew this was a koan, um, when I first started, I was told that everything has Buddha nature. And so then I asked my teacher, I said, well, does a dog? So uh, I'm glad that I got to have that experience before knowing it was a koan. And there's, there's a much more um, elaborate version of the, of the um, koan. And a friend of mine who uh, studied ancient Chinese translated it. And I can share a whole bunch of stuff that he wrote about that. But let's see what John Tarrant says first. And if we have time, we can do some of that. But he did it character by character, which is very interesting to see. But one of the things we discovered, and I'm probably the only one in the world who thought it was really significant, was in the Chinese, it says something like, having been asked, does a dog have Buddha nature? He said no. And kind of if like, um, Parents say something because they're asked. They're kind of irritated that they're even being asked. And so I thought that was significant that it would say that, having been asked. Maybe not, but that's my theory about it. So, uh, just how did this hit you? What? How did this become one of the most famous koans? It's so dumb, <laughs> in a way. Nelda? Um, it doesn't bother me, it's just wrong. It, 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 it doesn't even bother me. I don't even, I, I admire Peg going into a hut for that long because I have two doggies. I know they have Buddha nature. Uh, Emily? Yeah, I think I agree with Melda there. <laughs> Dog spelled backwards is God, so. Cody? This is funny, all the dog lovers. Does, dog, does a dog have Buddha nature? Uh, probably, I would think so. They are themselves. Starlet? <laughs> okay, here's my scientific explanation that I just, a theory. If Buddhism believes in pre-incarnation, then a dog, as any other animal, would have Buddha nature because it would be a being trying to 
become better each time reincarnating into something else. So there has to be a spark that is unique, a self that moves from one to another reincarnation. Thank so you. Okay. And Melissa. Well, I actually would counter with a question, which is, does a dog need Buddha nature? And Nandia. Um, this question is sort of like um, the question that uh, I remember from when I was a kid, which was, um, do you walk to school or take your lunch? <laughs> <laughs> That's good, yeah. And Nandia, uh, how would you explain Buddha nature? That's a real legitimate question. Um, I think it's the um, capacity to um, the capacity to awaken and uh, um, yeah. Um, And the capacity to um, to arise out of suffering, and you know, animals don't um, fuck around with their experience in the way that humans do. You know, when an animal is in pain, an animal is in pain. But an animal doesn't say, oh, fuck, I shouldn't have crossed the road at that moment. I should have, oh, you know, like, why was I following you? I always get messed up when I follow you. What's your problem? That's a human thing. So, you know, one could look at what some folks have said in terms of, um, rebirth and the different you know buddhism looks at the different realms of existence and the possibility for awakening that's present to different degrees in those different realms of existence if that's something that one connects into um one could say Yeah, I, I just think there's so many ways that that one could one could hold this very slim sentence. Um, so I think people misperceive Buddha nature as um, sort of yeah. Anyway, I've said enough. That's fine. I'm sick of myself. And, uh, and along myself. those lines, I I think a tree has Buddha nature. I've always wanted to be a tree. It knows exactly what it is, what its function is. It deals with what comes. It is, uh, it's there. It's present. So is that what Buddha nature is? Knowing what one is and, and dealing with what comes? Is that what you're saying Buddha nature is? 
And I'm certainly saying that that is a big part of it being knowing your true self. A tree knows it's a tree and it takes moment by moment. If it rains, it adapts to that as best it can give it its its capacity and capability. If winter comes, it's there's as with your statements about a dog doesn't go through all these suffering machinations, to the best of my knowledge, I don't see trees do that either. I so you said something that I thought was really interesting now that you said a tree knows it's a tree. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really interesting to reflect on. Does a tree know that it's a tree or is a tree a tree? Uh, Yes, that is my story, isn't it? A tree is a tree. Whether or not it knows it's a tree, I don't know. I base that on observing how it functions. It doesn't try to swim. Um, So yeah, good, good point, good point. A tree is a tree and doesn't carry all those added uh, attachments and stories. At, to the best of our knowledge, what do we know? I mean, really, how well do we really know what goes on inside a tree other than its biological function? Actually, I would like to say that we know a little bit more about trees in the latest discoveries it turns out that when a seed falls on the ground and it takes root and it becomes a seedling, the mother tree, it has been proven now that it actually takes care of it. If it's, there's not enough water, it would provide the water for it. If there's not enough nutrients, it would provide the nutrients for the seedling using the miscellaneous, um, the fungus, network that is underground is something amazing because we always thought that plants were very static they didn't do anything but no they feel and they protect their loved ones and they also get together when they know that there's an insect attack and they actually um, give the warning to the other plants so they can raise their own, the things that they have inside of them to make themselves not appetizing to bugs. So they won't eat as many of their leaves and stuff. It's seriously amazing. They are a community. I would really appreciate hearing if Cody or Kim has a a response to this. About trees or about? No, the question um, that, that you at the beginning about Buddha nature, not about trees specifically. Oh, haven't heard anything from Cody and I'm really aware of wanting to caring about what he has to say. What do you have to say, Cody? And also you can. What do I have to say? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. It it feels like it's kind of beyond my pay grade, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. Kim, how about you? Well, 
So I guess I first knew about this koan and heard it about 15 years ago. So I've had a little time with it. And um, to me, it's about all the questions that we ask. Are they really the right question? And is the no nothing to do with does a dog have it or not have it? But, but something about um, is, this, is this an appropriate question? Is this where your head should be? You know, like, like with the tree, uh, why are you thinking about this? Forget about, about the tree, but just why, why, why is he asking about this? He's, he's, is he saying, no, that's not the question you should be asking, or you shouldn't be asking questions, or you shouldn't be thinking about this. Like, like my teacher, um, used to criticize me, not that I've gotten over it, but for, he said, you know, you're doing too much discursive thinking. So it, it, to me, um, the no is a much broader no. It's not a, it's like, you know, let's not go there. That's, that's how I'm reading the no today, at least. So that's what I was wondering if that's what that no was. No to the question, not no to the no to asking that question, not no to the question yeah, asked. Yeah, I have a whole big thick book on Mu and Wu, which is the Chinese and Japanese uh, translation for the word no. And um, about 300 pages about this. So there's, there's quite a bit there. Let's see what John Katerin says, okay? <laughs> One might say to a 300 page book about that, no. no. <laughs> okay, Cody. Yes. Oh, time to read. The secret of changing your heart. I would like to beg you, dear sir, to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms are books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers, which cannot be given to you no now, because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday, far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your life way, live your way into the answer. Uh, By the way, th Rainer. this Rilke, uh, oh, Rainer Marie Rilke, but it's one of the most beautiful books and, and a very short book, and it's all uh, available as a PDF now, Advice to a Young Poet. Starlet, I, do you know the book? No, I never heard oh, of it. Oh, good, you, I, read it. it. So he's writing these letters to a young poet. <laughs> and oh. um, I... I yeah, I read it when I was in college. I just loved it so much. It's so beautiful. And you'll see it quoted a lot, different places. Thank you for letting me know. I'll check it out. I, I'm i not sure if it's called Advice to a Young Poet. Or I think mm -hmm. I even have a hard copy or Letters to a Young Poet. It's one or the other. I think it's called Letters to... Yeah. You, you, you know it, Nandia, then? You know yes. the book? It's yeah. lovely. I've read it. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. 
Um, so in this paragraph, I think, I mean, he's not talking, obviously, about the koan, Rilke, but it seems to, uh, you know, point in the direction about what questions should we be asking. And also how you can't, um, you have to live with a question as opposed to figure it out. I mean, that's how I'm reading what Rilke's saying. Live with the questions now, live the questions now. Perhaps then someday in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing, live your way into the answer. So, uh, Emily. Hmm. Koans are intended to bring about a profound change of heart. And how does this change come about? It's like what Hemingway said about going broke. It happens in two ways, first slowly, then quickly. The change itself is like walking through a door. On the other side of the door is the same world you always knew. Yet the eyes you see with are different. And this makes it a new world where new things are possible. It can be hard to express what you have discovered and hard to explain a joy that comes merely from being alive. Yet this change is a real experience that shifts the ground you stand on. One way to put it is that you begin to identify with what was background before and what you thought of as problems are revealed to only to be only apparent problems, things in the foreground. In the koan tradition, this discovery was called intimacy and considered as a meeting with reality. This chapter will show you a koan typically used to pull people through that door and give some of the flavor of what it's like to work with that koan. First of all, finding a koan is part of the preparation for working with it, and so legitimately part of the path into the koan. It is as if the koan is beginning to work as you move toward it. I, I, can I make a comment? Of course, anytime. The way I'm understanding this paragraph is that working with a koan is like, like a recipe, like when you're cooking and you may find that recipe, but you don't know how to cook it, even though it has the ingredient list, you don't quite know all the different steps because not everything is written in the recipe and you have to, you know, test things and try it one way, try it another, make it your own. And you don't even know how it's gonna taste because you have never eaten that dish. That's beautiful. And you know, in a way, Starlet, your life has been a koan. And you've been trying to, you know, figure it out and you've been doing all the things you've just described, haven't you? Yeah. I, okay, that's the comment I wanted to make. Thank you. I knew, oh, finding the koan. I knew that I wanted something without knowing what it was. So I just staggered off in the general direction of what might be helpful. Some Tibetan teachers wandered into Australia 
and gave a month-long silent retreat in the hills outside of Brisbane, I don't know. The place was lush, subtropical, and beloved of mosquitoes. In practice, people had different definitions of silence, so those who thought it meant not talking wore ribbons to identify themselves. I was one of the ribbon-wearing fanatics. The Lamas had no clues about Westerners, and we used to meditate for two and a half hours at a time. Yet the discomfort of being with my thoughts was greater than that of being with my body. One Lama played good cop and talked about how wonderful enlightenment was. The other Lama did bad cop, austere, monastic, prudish, and talked at length about how desire was suffering. He had me imagine how my girlfriend would get old and ugly and die and rot. Also, I would get old and ugly, etc. It seemed to me that while these observations were true, such matters are already well understood and offer little progress toward answering my questions. When people showed signs of distress, the Lama introduced the idea of hell realms after death. He was a Christian brother in fancy dress. Some of his words were actually helpful metaphors for the mind's process, and others seemed merely medieval. I disliked him in a satisfying way. People in the retreat sneaked out to eat meat pies or have love affairs, and although those possibilities were interesting to me, I already knew about them, and I wanted to run into something I didn't know about. That was self-discovery. That was itself a discovery. I had thought that finding out what was really going on would require a lot of self-denial. Instead, it was more a matter of noticing what I really, really wanted. It was simply more interesting to me than the other options. So I suppose I agreed with the austere Lama to the extent that I stuck it out. The sentence, I disliked him in a satisfying way, is so relatable and it also feels so profoundly unskillful to me. What was the word you used? Un... Unskillful. Un unskillful? Not onward leading. Hmm. That, or it could also, if you dislike someone intensely or at least i've had this experience the there comes a point at which you start wondering why you dislike them so intently and then when you start investigating that you can find all kinds of things out about yourself of course <laughs> of course that goes without saying but this this implies a taking of pleasure in the aversion, in the disliking of another individual. That's what I'm referring to. Yeah. Oh, I'm afraid I have had that very experience. Right. It's Sometimes relatable. it's just really Certainly. satisfying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. 
So the, what I'm hearing, Nandia, is you kind of like the author less because he's he's saying this. Well, it's not that I like him less. I find it I find it relatable. You know, I can understand that, but I also um, don't think that that's something that I would would wish to cultivate in my, in myself. I don't think that it's um, Like I said, I don't think it's skillful. It, it's it, most people wouldn't admit to this. Um, perhaps not. But in reading it, you know, I'm admitting that I find it relatable, and other people have also said they find it relatable. Um, but I don't think that he. I don't think he gets points just for saying something that other people might not tend to utter. No, I agree. <laughs> Anyway, I just, I, that really stood out to me. Okay. Uh, One day, as the, oh, more dislikable people. One day, as the dislikable Lama was teaching about the nature of mind, I unexpectedly found what he was saying to be fascinating. Tears ran down my cheeks. Ah, I thought, in curiously stilted deep meditation speak. This is like being with sages of the past. And this took a Christian form for me. I could feel the dust of the Galilee under my shoes as if I were walking with Jesus on the shore. From then on, I began to take a macabre Monty Python-like glee in the Lama's tale of hell and to listen more closely to his teaching, though I still didn't like him that much. What I took away from the experience was the discovery that I wasn't interested in my own opinion of the Lama. That was a reversal of the way I had always operated. I could see that what I thought I wanted might not in fact be what I wanted. Then at the same retreat, I came across koans in a book and saw that they were, were related to that sort of reversal. A koan appeals to you the way a song or a poem might. It is interesting to you in some deep way. Then it's for you. The koan that follows is the first koan I worked with. It has been around for a long time and for the last thousand years has been at the top of the charts as a first koan. It is just a fragment of an old story and is really simple. The so part, part of the koan. I'm sorry. Go on. I just said there's a koan pop chart that's so yeah. exciting, like like the top ten country hits or something. And there's a question: Why? How could this possibly be a top hit? It's so dumb. So. Uh, so who's reading now? I believe it's my turn. Okay. The Korn. How do I say his name? Zhao Zhou, Zhao Zhu, or Zhao Zhou. Yeah. Zhao's dog. Someone asked Zhao Zhou, does a dog have Buddha nature 
or not? Zhao Zhou said, no. Working with the koan, Zhao Zhou was a minimalist. He just had expected his one word reply to be enough to open the gates of the heart. The thought that he knew what he was doing, I reason, is more interesting than the opposite. So what, do, what to do with this one word? It is said that once when Robert Trilly gave a reading as part of a class he was teaching, one of the students asked, is that a real poem or did you make it up yourself? I had to, to make it up. I had to make up how to work with a koan. The books I read said that you needed a teacher and who knows what mental dangers you would face if you didn't have a teacher and so on. Given that I was in Australia, that sort of advice would have limited me to playing cricket in the bush with kangaroos, naturally. I ignore it. <laughs> the dog part of the koan didn't catch me. Cattle dogs of respectable demeanor are welcome in my personal heaven. And Buddha nature just seemed another word for nature, something already sacred. I took the question to ask, does a dog have worth? Do I have worth? When I'm sick, when I'm ashamed, when I'm bored, when I have no money, does my friend have worth? And what about my enemy? Can I love the whole of life? I knew that I couldn't love the whole of my life. So that was a promising place to start. Also, I didn't mind if my own hardly coherent wanderings were rolled up. It's for the dog question from a person in his own painful doubt 1,200 years before. My questions were not any better than his. <clears throat> this made my comrade, this made him my comrade. The one word replied no was easy to concentrate on. One way to work with a koan seemed to be to become completely absorbed in it. This was hard for me at first. The tension of wanting to break through the koan was very frustrating. Like the tension a child might feel over wanting to ride a bicycle. My face itched and I felt like a failure. I meditated, trying to be unobtrusive in parks, churches, mountains, trains, the Queensland Parliamentary Library and the Senate dining room in Canberra. When I sat outside, bushflies, the Australian national bird, <laughs> crawled into my eye corners seeking moisture. Uh, koans required a humility that is really a kind of plainness in approaching life without drama and ulterior motives. I had no great reserves of such humility, humility, 
It was something that had to appear by itself because I didn't know that it was needed. Gradually, I stopped expecting the kinds of things I usually expected. I didn't know what scale of difficulty was appropriate for my problem. And after a while, it didn't seem hard or easy. When I resolved or rather noticed that even if I got nowhere with the koan, I would keep with it for the rest of my not very important life. That softened my heart a little. It allowed me to just have the meditation I happened to be having with, <coughs> without complaint. I was lobbying for original land rights at the time and meetings were often held in pubs. So I learned to meditate drunk and then learn how boring my mind was when I was drunk. My idea was to meditate no matter what. Okay, I'm sorry, but could you go to the, to the page before the beginning of the paragraph? To me, it, it, that is very impactful. Koans require a humility that is really a kind of plainness in approaching life without drama and ulterior motives. I have never heard it put that way because when I imagine uh, a Buddhist monk is somebody who's unfazed by whatever's happening. They're always serene. So I don't know if this refers to that, but that's how uh, I understood it. And yeah. you say that as being plain, I would have, to me, being serene is, is a mighty thing. <laughs> but to put it as plain, I don't know. But then the second part of approaching life without drama or ulterior motives. So it's like, with everything that can happen in life, approach it without drama. That is magnificent. Isn't that nice? So this is a similar thing. It's from... It's the quote of the day for October 18th last year. And I read it to my son like two hours ago. Just as a solid rock is not shaken by the storm, even so the wise are not affected by praise or blame. Seems like on a similar track. Mm -hmm. And I love the part of ulterior, ulterior motives. So when we go, why is this happening to me? Why did this have to happen to me? So it's like, no, you don't even go there. That's been your question, hasn't it? Well, there was a time that it was, but um, I let that go. It's yeah, that seems to be an important step, doesn't it? To have the question and then to let it go. Yeah, because it wasn't for me to know the answer. I don't have all the information and I never will. So I only have, the only thing that I can do is to live my own life. If I have to waste my time trying to figure out why these things are happening to me that are completely, like why would I get sick? 
that's not up to me. There's nothing I could have done to prevent it. So that's just torturing myself. It's a waste of my time. It's nothing constructive. So is, is the question, does a dog have Buddha nature similar, you know, as being a waste of time? Is that what the, his teacher is saying? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Who's reading now? I think I am. Okay. A few years later found me at dawn whacking a large Japanese hanging bell with a wooden mallet. Down its sides, the bell had bronze resonating knobs like an avant-garde hairdo. It gave loud, slightly clanging notes with the wah-wah fluttering of the overtones that guitarists call butterflies. From where I stood, I had sort of a view of gavas, uh, papayas, and rose apple trees, and a long view to the ocean on Maui. I'll read the next one if that's okay. Sure. Um, we had a little cargo cult going in which we learned how Zen Buddhism was done in a, a more or less Japanese way. In the original cargo cults, people in New Guinea saw airplanes landing and disgorging stuff, food, clothing, medicine, typewriters, Margaret Mead. So the <laughs> New, Guineans, New Guineans adapted a hunting metaphor. They cleared airstrips and built their own airplanes out of plywood and scrap. They were decoys to attract other airplanes with their cargo. In Hawaii, we were pretending to be Japanese to attract a change of heart. Black robes, incense, bowing, a Berlitz phrase book of Japanese phrases. We had every kind of person from Pulitzer Prize winning poets and business types at the high end, tapering off to riffraff, dope growlers, psychotherapists, Australians at the other end. We may have been riffraff, but we were sincere riffraff. <laughs> dope growlers, psychotherapists, and Australians. What a motley crew. <laughs> the teacher had a terrific story himself. He had been interned in Japan during the Second World War and learned about koan from the poet and translator R.H. Blythe. I'd gone to him for the excellent reason that he was the only person who answered letters from Australia. He hadn't an enlightenment experience himself, he said, but he had a kind of cookbook from his teacher that allowed him to guide people through koan. The whole thing was best approached with a sense of humor. And the strange thing was that for me, it was working. My new thing was concentration. It wasn't a change of heart, yet it was something I could work on directly. It was like the fellow who lost his car keys in the dark alley, but was looking for them under the streetlight. There's more light here, he explained. I hoped that if I sat very, very still and didn't have thoughts, then lightning would strike. Tricky. Gradually, things became clearer, though. I would drive myself and at the end of a retreat, fall into despair, having missed another opportunity to understand something beyond my small and miserable personality. 
Of course, it was my small and miserable personality that was in despair too. And on good days, I began to be amused by it. A, a grand Japanese teacher came to visit and I went to see him, full of hope that somehow, perhaps now indeed, why not now, if I was completely attentive, an experience would be triggered in me. He took one look at me, eager and overwrought, and patiently explained the beginning steps of meditation. Just take this koan and keep it with you day and night. Then I went into a seven day retreat for which I was well prepared. While my went to the beach. I stayed in a night. I stayed I stayed in a I thought I would be completely diligent and do the retreat without a moment's distraction. After a day or two, my mind was deep and clear. And then suddenly it wasn't. Wild and senseless thoughts soon by. Images, songs, memories of early childhood and memories I couldn't possibly have had. There was no pattern to my mind and I could not begin to control my thoughts. I had done everything right and this was the result. I had failed. A tiny thought appeared. Then, this must be right. I just let my mind be whatever it wished to be. And immediately, it calmed down. I had the sense of standing on the brink of a, on the brink of a vast chasm and that I must have the courage to throw myself off. Yet, I couldn't. I didn't know how. I was stuck there for a day or two trying to overcome fear. Then I said to myself, okay, so you are afraid. And instantly the fear disappeared. Another tiny thought appeared that I was the koan, no. I began to feel a connection to the universe. It seemed very funny that I had struggled so long to find a place in the universe when I couldn't fall out of the universe. It was as if I wave, it was as if a wave were struggling to understand what the sea was. I began laughing. The teacher had a nice set of questions to test if you were really having some sort of profound experience. These questions along with Kip likely answers had been handed down orally from Hakuin, an 18th century, an 18th century Japanese teacher. I was very touched that Hakuin would have thought of this, thought of us across the centuries and oceans. And I found that the questions helped me find a language for, for my experience. They were odd, but not random. Questions such as how high is no and explain no to a baby. The questions pushed me to see that a spiritual, a spiritual 
experience takes place in the life I actually live. So I laughed secretly to myself because life was so obviously tender and intimate. This laughter went on for months. The experience I had was a something to believe in. It was more a noticing and a way of seeing. I also found, also I found that I was at no risk of becoming saintly or of knowing all the answers. It was just that something in my heart was at rest and the world seemed, seemed a much kinder place. Other people seemed kinder than I, and I was grateful to them for waiting for me to discover this. The world bubbled with light just under the surface, even when difficulties arose. I was beginning to love life, the whole of life. Um, I would like to point out a sentence when he says, um, okay, let me find it. Oh, where is it? Oh, here it is. Also, I found that I was at no risk of becoming saintly or of knowing all the answers. Because I think that's genius to have it there because you kind of think, oh, you're meditating all this much, so you're going to become wise and knowledgeable. And, and no, <laughs> he's like admitting, oh, you know what? I'm finding my own groove. I'm finding what I need. And yeah, I don't have all the answers, but that's fine. And I'm not going to be perfect. <laughs> and that's okay too. So I think that humanizes the process. So uh, there, was, there was a course um, on the philosophy of science. It was a graduate seminar and I just went a few times, but I was a freshman, I think. But the, here's my one. The, the main the main point I remember that the teacher was talking about was that um, we learn about the scientific method, but that's not really how most scientific discoveries are made. They're, it's more closer to what we're reading here. No, not, it's more like the light bulb goes off in the, in the, light, in the bathtub or whatever the expression is. And, um, Anyway, so that it, it connects very much with what we're reading here. Hi, Milan. I was wondering where you were. I thought, I mean, I missed one hour just because I got confused. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. <laughs> it might be helpful to look at another briefer and recent account by a woman in Northern California. She wasn't interested in meditation or in the Japanese ascetic, but she was a pianist, and the aspect of koans as art intrigued her. This is what she said. No was an incredible process for me. It took a year and a half. I kept a journal and had major dreams. Over and over again, I came to my teacher and said, it's this or it's that. For a long time, the teacher rejected my answers, and this made me confident since I didn't really believe them myself. 
Snow pushed other thoughts away. Familiar places looked like I had never seen them before. This happened in flashes at first and then became more consistent. I found that I could survive frustration and the continual tormenting, I don't know. I would sit and it would be no. And in the afternoon, I was so tired and it was no. In the evening, there was a burst of energy and it was still no. I got unhooked from my condition. What was happening in my mind was just something happening in my mind. I hit a dry place. Why continue, I thought. I'm no good at this anyway. Why did I ever think that I could be included in this? It was an important thing to go through the dry place, and it helped that I was encouraged to sit through it and value it. I realized that if I would just pay attention, little things would open up, little snatches. I was sorting seeds, as in a fairy tale. Being given a task, I thought, can be a form of grace. Once, when I was also working with No in a retreat, I was with my son and a friend of his. I thought, oh, I'll have to work at this. I have to be, <coughs> I'll have to be on as a parent. Yet, when I went to look after the boys, I could see they were perfectly right as they were. And I just needed to be there and to enjoy them. I actually experienced this the other day. I've been driving my kids on Wednesday, my grandkids, um, to Hebrew class. And usually, like, I talk with them or ask them questions or stuff, but they were just, they were just into their own conversation, and I just enjoyed it. And I usually don't do that, but I, I did that the other day. They really wanted me to hear their stories, and I felt their boy stories washing over me. It was another moment of thusness like seeing sunlight falling against the wooden floor. Nothing was required of me. Before I had the feeling that when you see the thusness of things, it is because you have become something special. But I could see now that it was just how things really were. The world came forward to me and it wasn't me going out to the world. Then, in a retreat, we did walking meditation out into the park, out into the parking lot. I said to myself, this is a regal procession. I noticed the guy in front of me had a black silk shirt on. It had a dull finish. Redwood branches parted in front of my eyes, and then there was that thing that's hard to describe, the nothingness, that wham of past, present, future, gone. No separation between past and present. There is no self, absolutely none. The redwoods parted and it was whitish and granular, precipitate like seeing between the atoms. Who knows how long it lasted, but I found myself still walking. When I arrived back and my immediate thought was, wait, I have to be left with some word. It was like, okay, if you insist on going back to the small world and having a word, even after everything has been shown to you, this is what you get. No other. Melen, do you want to read? Sure. Then, 
then it started getting really close to me. Then I started getting really close to me. I could hold up my foot and say, here is no foot. How big is no? I am no size. The sense of kinship was very direct and obvious at that point. I could look at the wood floor and see that those cells are me. I could look at the rock and the rock was doing its rock thing. There is no separation, nothing, nothing in between the rock and me, nothing in between anything. Also, when I utter a word, I create the world. This came with the luscious sense that nothing has ever happened before. Also, of course, it all continues whether I'm mad or sad or get married or any of those things. Everything happens without needing me to do anything. The teacher thought was still rejecting my answer. It's a though. Though. Though, you. you know, the teacher though was still rejecting my answer even after doing all these things. And that's a, the deal that, that it, I did a weekend workshop with a Rinzai Koan teacher and, uh, and Peg knows her too. And, and Peg told me that, that she says, um, I ring the bell, you know, as soon as I see the person enter the room, I can ring the bell knowing that they're not there yet. So we would stand in line every, like every two hours and go in and see her. And the, the, the koan was something like, what is this? And we would start to say it and then she would ring the bell and we'd have to leave and come back two hours later. So, uh, that was fun. Could you go to the beginning of that paragraph, please, on the... Sure. Or because I love the sentence, then I started getting really close to me. You would think that you are close to your own self, but that is so hard to do. And I love that sentence. Okay, I think, uh, is it Melissa or Starlet? No, I think I, I go after Nelda. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's Nandia, I think. Oh, Nandia? Okay. Where are we? Sorry. Oh, then, no, start Oops. changing. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Oops. Okay. Then no start changing and I start to move on. It becomes a field of possibility. I hang out in this place for another six months. I don't need to own anything. I've already owned everything and been everything. The idea of a teacher confirming this seems totally ridiculous. Later, still working with no, I was at a retreat in the Redwoods again and walked into a first floor bathroom. Though it was cleaned regularly, the bathroom always had the fragrance of pee. No became the whole fragrance in essence of pee. I wasn't drawn or repelled. There was just nothing else in the whole world. 
I didn't have to live with the fragrance of pee, but did have to live with that discovery. No attraction, no repulsion, not doing, not picking and choosing. I used the tools at hand, in this case, the pee. What other tools I thought would I use? After that, I could answer the teacher's questions and the teacher finally passed me on, no. You know, I finally understood this koan a little bit. That was great. You don't know what's going to do it, do you? Mm-mm. What's going to give you clarity? Mm-mm. Yeah. yeah. It's so interesting that we've worked with this a couple of times in different koan classes. And um, it's just, even as I read the words and I've been reading the words, it, it I was, in the beginning, I said, you know, I don't struggle with this koan. I had no doggies have doggy nature, but but taking the no and, and applying it to, and I've been doing that. I have my own favorite koan, which is free a ghost. I go through my day saying, free a ghost and wondering how many there are and if any of them have been freed and if they really do want to be free and then applying that to different things. And so now I understand a little bit about no. Thank you, author. And uh, Starlet, are you next or Nandia? No. No. You're, you're next. Yeah, Dandia Red. Okay. Through the cons, I stopped trying to improve myself. The con had made me more interested in my actual life and less interested in the ideal or spiritual life. There's a sense of staying with things and of commitment as in my marriage. But at the same time, there's not that fear of what would happen if something didn't work. I really don't care if we are in this house or have that TV. There are things I care about, but I can lose my arm and I'm still me. Can I lose that tablecloth? Yeah. And if I'm thinking something is not working, it's probably not working. When I rest in what I don't know, I stick up for myself. For this woman, The moment of meeting the universe happened through meeting a part of it, a thought, a black silk shirt, redwood bronze, untangling a child's hair, the smell of urine, Blake's grain of sand. This raises a deep question. My own experience with the koan, no, didn't immediately change the shape of my life, though gradually it undermined the ramp- the ramparts I had built against life. It was more that the koan reset my mind to zero. 
learning was easier since I lost my shame about not knowing already. Yet whatever I was incompetent at doing, I continued to have to learn or not. And here are some interesting questions I've been asking myself about the art in this koan. If an ordinary experience can be ecstatic, couldn't the moment a profound change of heart occurs be uncommonplace, be commonplace? Could that opening of the heart be going on all the time, unnoticed, in secret, in plain sight? Couldn't it be something that is happening right now? Couldn't the home everyone is always looking for be right here, right now? Could that openness be the natural state of the mind? So, Malen, the koan that we were reading about was, does a dog have Buddha nature? And the teacher, Zalzo, says no. I see. So, are you clear? Yeah, I, I have heard that koan, um, and I will hear, hear them. Sound cloud whatever, <laughs> to catch up. Thank you. So we never read about Buddha nature, did we, Starlet? <laughs> no. I'm still 